So when I was a junior in college, <clears throat> I met this really handsome guy named Tim Belinsky. <laughs> Tim and I were friends with a group of friends, and so we hung out a little bit together. And, and uh, eventually we found ourselves spending a little more time just the two of us than with the group of friends. And we'd been dating for about a month to six weeks, maybe, when something kind of special happened for me. Um, I had had a particularly stressful weekend, which the details of which are not important. But I went to Tim's apartment afterwards, and I'd been there for about maybe two or three minutes. We'd had just a brief conversation. And something just settled over me. And there was this voice that said, that's who you're going to marry. Now, I knew enough, even at that young age, that that is not something a girl tells a boy after a month of dating. So I kept that to myself. But there was just an inner knowing to that. And it was very peaceful, and it was very true. It went beyond intuition. It went beyond schoolgirl crushes. It was deep within. And I've had other moments like that in my life, not many, but a few, and I'm guessing you probably have too, those moments of just crystal clarity about something, where you know that you know that you know something. That's what happened for Peter. What happened with Peter in today's scripture reading defies anything that can be explained by human behavior or activity. You see, people were talking about Jesus. How could they not? He'd been traveling through the whole region, healing people, teaching, performing miracles, dining with sinners and whatnot. Jesus was kind of a big deal at this time. And so one day, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, so who do people say that I am? And the disciples inform him that people have all kinds of ideas about who they think Jesus is. Some thought he was Elijah, who had accomplished similar miracles in his day. Some thought he was a new prophet, a Jeremiah, maybe, for the new age. Herod, of course, thought that John the Baptist had been resurrected to come and torment him after Herod had had John's head placed on a platter. But then Jesus asks them pointedly, almost sort of egging them on, prodding them to answer from within that which they already knew. But who do you say that I am? And then Simon Peter, acting as sort of the spokesman for the disciples, has that crystal clarity without hesitation, and I can almost picture it, the truth coming down like it always does when it's written in your soul about something. He says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, I don't know if Jesus was looking for a right or wrong answer here, and I suspect that he would have had an awful lot of grace, regardless of the disciples' answer. But what Jesus acknowledges in Peter is what I knew that day with Tim, what you've probably had in circumstances in your own life, that Peter's answer could not have come from anywhere or anyone but God. Blessed are you, Simon Peter, Jesus said, because this was not revealed by flesh and bones, but by my Father 
in heaven. The world chatters loudly about who Jesus is, who Jesus is not. It's hard to cut through that noise sometimes. And we make it harder on ourselves than it probably is really necessary. We can be 100% certain sometimes that we've just had a God-inspired revelation in our lives. And then somebody cuts us off at the knees by saying something super helpful like, oh, you believe in that? Or, oh, that's such a sweet thought. Bless your heart. We love those dismissive comments. Or, huh, good luck with that. These are not the responses we might be looking for, but that's the world. The world says, don't be ridiculous. The world says, isn't that sweet? The world says, you've gotten things wrong before. The world says, you've failed. You've experienced too much pain. You must be wrong. The world says simply, um, no. But what do you say? What you say makes all the difference. Who do you say God is? Because your answer affects everything else in your life. Is God an angry, vengeful God? Is God making lists in heaven ready to keep you out for bad behavior? Does God play favorites? Does God advocate violence or hate in God's name? Does God stand guard at the gates of heaven? Is God indifferent? Is God a metaphor? Or is God just impossibly loving to every single person that ever walked the earth and all of creation? Is God shelter, provider, comforter, redeemer? Does God comfort the afflicted and rejoice in justice and mercy? Does God have a greater plan for your life than you could ever imagine? Does God work all things together for good? Does God use everything? Does God heal everything? Does God bring about glory from everything? Who do you say I am, Jesus asked? The truth is revealed by God, even when we don't understand it. Truth resonates deep within us. And perhaps the truth is not even learned by outside sources, but something recalled, something remembered. Our story, our collective Christian story, is filled with courageous, inspiring, imaginative figures who were forced to answer this question for themselves. And their answers made all the difference for them, and they're still making a difference for us today. Way back at the very beginning of our story, in the beginning of the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 1, back when the Hebrew people were just in the infancy stage of being God's people, a group of women set the stage for the entire liberation of the Hebrew people. Freedom fighters, if you will. See, it didn't take long after Joseph died for a new king to come into power who knew nothing about Joseph and his brothers. He knew nothing about the promises that the earlier king had made to Joseph regarding the Hebrew people. And by this time, the Hebrew people had increased in Egypt, as God said they would, and the new king became quite nervous. 
even though they were forced labor for the king, the king was afraid that the Hebrews were growing too quickly in number and certainly too strong in stature. And he convinced himself that they posed a threat. The king worked the people without mercy. He was ruthless to them, but still they threatened him. They threatened him to the point of murder, and he ordered all of them killed. Well, not all of them, just the newborn baby boys. He ordered two midwives, Shifra and Pua, to kill every newborn boy born to a Hebrew woman. I find it ironic that he thought the girls didn't pose much of a threat, considering what happens next. Shifra and Pua, two women who are never mentioned in the Bible ever again, by the way, set in motion the redemption of God's people. Shifra and Pua refused to obey the king's orders, refused to bend to the will of the most powerful man on the planet for one reason. They feared now, recall here that the fear of the Lord is a phrase that's used over 300 times in the Bible, and it is a good thing. This kind of fear of the Lord means reverence and worship, so much so that it causes us to reorient our lives, reorient our behaviors in order to honor and glorify God, which is precisely what the midwives did. Blatantly disobeying the king, he came to the two women and said, what are you doing? Why are you letting them live? And they said, there's nothing we can do about it. These Hebrew women are so vigorous, they give birth before we even arrive. <laughs> and the king fell for it. Hundreds of babies were saved. And God was good to the midwives, and he blessed them with families of their own. I included this scripture passage in today's bulletin so you can read about it at home because it was this subversive act for the sake of justice that resulted in a baby boy named Moses being set afloat on the Nile. Why did they do it? Because they knew to the very core of their being who God is, that God cares deeply for the oppressed, that no one is destined to annihilation or subservience because of who or what they are. No one is destined for a life of despair. That those who fear the Lord will reorient themselves, bringing glory to God, and in so doing, heap blessings on themselves. I know of a young South African athlete named Neil Lowe, who in 1984 was out for a day of sailing with his brothers in South Africa, when the mast of their sail touched an overhead power line, sending 11,000 volts of electricity through their bodies. It was a medical miracle that they even survived. Each one received third-degree burns. They each had to have limbs amputated. Neil Lowe, the athlete, got his left arm amputated. He describes that time in his life as being in sheer agony, suffering from both physical and mental pain, from the burns and the skin grafts and the amputation. He spent months in the hospital and at home in rehab. But he also recounts that in the midst of this indescribable pain 
there was a constant awareness that in his words, nothing could separate me from the love of God. Neil Lowe went on to win numerous Paralympic medals over the next 20 years, but what really set him apart was his ministry to his fellow disabled athletes. He says that as he laid in that hospital bed, as he worked his way through rehab and his re-entry into the world, the awareness that nothing would separate him from God was preparing him for a ministry that he didn't even know yet existed. He had no inkling of what might lay ahead. What he did was to simply let his life be a testimony as he continually walked the talk and laid witness to his knowledge that nothing could separate God from him. Other athletes would ask him, how did he stay so positive? In the face of such adversity, why wasn't he more angry or bitter about what had happened? And it always brought Neil back to one thing, the answer to the question, who do you say that I am? To Neil Lowe, the answer was and continues to be, you are a God who loves me and is always with me. Even in the depths of my despair, nothing can separate me from your love. When we recognize who God is, we recognize who we are, we recognize who, we recognize the God in all others. When we know that we know that we know that God is at work in, yes, even this. I came across a quote earlier this week from Martin Luther King Jr. and I thought it was so fitting. It, it's the way that we know who God is when sometimes we doubt ourselves. This is what Martin Luther King says. Seek God and discover God and make God a power in your life. With God, we are able to rise from the fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope, to rise from the midnight of desperation to the daybreak of joy. That's who God is to Martin Luther King, a buoyancy of joy. When we're looking to try to understand how do we discern the voice, how do we know who God is, seek God, discover God, make him a power in your life, Martin Luther King would say. And I would have to agree. Who do you say that I am? Shifrin Pua said, you are the most high God who is more powerful, more mighty, more to be revered than the most powerful man on earth. They put all their faith, all their actions, all their hope in God, not in Pharaoh. They didn't wring their hands in worry and anxiety as they listened to the voice of a king they knew was in the wrong. No, they just said God is who he says he is, and we follow God. And God was good to them. Who do you say that I am? Peter, amid all the voices trying to articulate just who Jesus was, he was Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, a prophet. Amid all the speculation and rumor, something rose up in Peter that was so clear an answer, it could only have been revealed by God. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And with that, Peter was handed the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Who do you say that I am? When we can answer that question, 
with the confidence of a Shifra and a Pua, with the confidence of Peter, with the confidence of Neil Lowe, then nothing else that we utter matters. When we can utter that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that God is impossibly loving, always comforting, always merciful, never not present, everything else follows. I think perhaps Simon Peter was lucky. God revealed the answer to him before anyone else could tell him what to think. We are constantly being told who God is and how God behaves and what we can expect from God, so much so that we sometimes become immune to the beautiful revelations of God all around us in everyday life. If I were teaching a Sunday school class this morning, our godly play class has such a beautiful way of articulating the mystery of Jesus. And so I would simply, following the godly play role, ask the kids, I wonder who you think Jesus is. And just let the question settle on them. And they might be able to pull out a Bible story that we've taught them in the past, or maybe a memory verse or something that they've been taught at home. But more than likely, they're just going to answer from the heart as their faith and their lives in God mature over time. And the same is true for us. I look at Jesus' words not as expecting some kind of certainty of an answer, but inviting possibility, inviting wonder. I wonder who you say that I am. How willing are you to answer Jesus' question for yourself? I hear it as being less about certainty and more about inquiry, about imagination, about wonder and possibility. Fill in the blank. Jesus is blank. The invitation to you today is this. Get silent. Spend some time with God. Quiet the voices of the world. Be still and ask yourself, who do I say that Jesus is? Allow God to reveal to you what flesh and bones cannot what human voices cannot. Jesus is blank. Your answer has everything to do with who you are willing to be and how you want to show up in the world.